I'm Ed Randall, and you're listening to Baseball and Barbecue. This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Baseball and BBQ. And Cracker Jacks. Uh, hey, so welcome back. Wow. Well, I don't know if we're if we're uh, together or not, but that was... Uh, that was, was quite, quite an opening there. Quite an opening. Welcome. <laughs> Episode 51. Thanks for joining us, everyone. You know, this is Jeff Cohen. And you are? Len Aberman. And once again, you join us. We join you. And, and what more What more could you want? I mean, I know it's been a long two weeks, but hopefully you guys have been enjoying episode 50, which I got to tell you, Jeff Idelson, Gene Fruth, Aaron Stouffer, great. I, I really like that episode. Yes, me too. Me too. You know, now we're on the next episode. It's Right. Life moves on. We're moving on. Episode 51. I think you guys are going to like what we have for you. A lot of topics have come up. We've that we could talk about Don Larson. I, I want well Don oh, Larson. Wait, okay. no, no. Sorry, I go ahead. Say what you're going to say. Go ahead, no, say it. I wanted to start with a rant, but go, yeah, but no. we should start with oh, Don Larson. A rant. Yeah, you're going to start with a rant. Let's go with Don Larson, who passed away on January 1st. The only pitcher to pitch a perfect game in the World Series. And if everybody knows the the the, the picture of. Yogi Berra jumping into his arms as at the end of the game. It was exciting. Only perfect, like you just said, only perfect game in the World Series. And, Jeff, I want to float this by you. Yes, go ahead. Tell me what you think of this. All right. A lot of times, baseball talk, you talk about, okay, what record will remain forever? Some, you, they used to say it was uh, Gehrig's, consecutive game streak. Of course, that was broken by Cal Ripken Jr. interesting you mentioned Lou Gehrig, but go ahead. Right, <laughs> yes. And, of course, now they, you know, will it ever be broken again? I don't know, but Pete Rose is, not Pete Rose, I'm sorry. Yeah, Pete, Pete Rose's number of hits. Right, number of hits. But uh, Joe DiMaggio's hit streak, right. right? These are all records. Of course, for the longest time, uh, Roger Maris' 61 home runs right. was uh, the season record. We didn't know if that would ever be broken. Right. We still don't really know if it was officially <laughs> broken, but that's another topic for another day. That's right. Okay. But yeah, this one will never. Well, it can't be broken. Well, see, that's the thing. It can't be matched. Right. Uh, it it can be matched. Well, I guess technically it can right. be broken, but will it even be matched? No. Because see, here's what I'm thinking. It was a perfect game in a World Series game. Right. So, the only possibility you have is every year in the World Series. Now, the most games that can be played in the World Series are seven, right? Right. Not many World Series go seven games. Right. So, but let's say you have a ch- you have chance, seven game chance. But that's it. Every year, there's right. only seven games that someone has a possibility to do it in. Right. It's not like you have a whole 162-game season because it's got to be a World Series game. Right. And that's why I think that that is one that's never going to happen again. I agree. I agree. So, so rest in peace, Don Larson. He gave us a perfect game in the World Series, something that we think will never, ever, ever be matched. And not only that, we, you know, we talk about, we've talked about extraordinary years in ordinary careers. 
he had an extraordinary game. Game. That's right? it. Look, his career record is 81 and 91. Right. His career ERA is 3.78, and his win-loss percentage is, is, is less than 500, obviously, at 471. So he wasn't the, the greatest pitcher in the world, but he did give us the greatest game that in the world. That game. Right. He was, he, he was on that game. Right. So, Don but, Larson. And I wanted to go with a rant. Now, follow that with a rant. Go right okay, ahead. Okay, my rant is, uh, in all due respect to Claire Smith, who is a Hall of Fame writer in the writer's wing, a very famous writer, she put in her Hall of Fame vote for this past year for the 2020 Hall of Fame ballot. And she, last year, she voted for Kurt Schilling. This year, she did not vote for Kurt Schilling. I want to know what changed in Kurt Schilling's career. Now, I know, personally, he's not the greatest guy in the world. I, I get that, but we're talking about what's done on the field. Nothing has changed in his statistics right. the last 12 months. Did he get less strikeouts? Did he get less wins? Did he pitch less games? Why would she right. vote for some, someone last year and not this year? Uh, it's just, just, it boggles my mind. I don't know why. I don't know. I have no clue why she someone. So would he's that. Hall of Fame worthy one year. Yes, and then all of a sudden he's not Hall of Fame. And it's worthy. not like she used up all ten spots on a ballot. She only voted for six people this year. So all of a sudden he 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 lost the vote right because of something. Uh, what happened? I have no idea. Right. I mean, if if yes, his politics may be crazy. Whatever. That's another story that's, for another that's day. Another, that's another podcast. But, Right and, and and not based on BBQ podcast. That's that's exactly. a different podcast. That, that might go, be go Alex Jones. Jones. Yeah, go somewhere else for those, for those podcasts. Right. Maybe NPR, Alex Jones. Who knows? Right. But you're right. He he didn't. His stats didn't change. He was a Hall of Famer. Right. He should continue to be a Hall of Famer. Right. If you think he's a Hall of Famer. Then why don't you still think he's a Hall of Famer? Now, I can understand if this ballot was loaded with other worthy candidates and she used up all ten spaces. I can get that. But she didn't. Right. Right. Maybe she... Right. Exactly. Oh, this year, you know, he... We, I didn't have room for him. Right. But if she... You're right. She didn't use up her spots. Right. So if she's listening, let us know. Let us know. Call uh, in. Yeah. Call how, in. How can she get in touch with us, Jeff? Give us a call, 516-855-8214. You can also email us, baseball and bbq at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our Facebook page. Tweet us. Our Twitter address is at baseball and bbq. We have an Instagram, baseball and barbecue with barbecue all spelled out. So one way or another, we would like you to... Hey, friendly... Just let us know. Yeah, that's all. Why is Kurt Schilling not on your ballot? Right. Exactly. Now, Jeff, before we go any further. Yes. Because everybody's sitting there or whatever, they're, however they're listening to this, standing, sitting, jogging. I, I heard some people listen to this while they're on a treadmill. What, however you're listening to this, you probably want to know what's coming up. So we got to tell you, we have an interview with the author, Dan Joseph. And if you guys are fans of Lou Gehrig, and so many people love Lou Gehrig, he wrote a book, Last Ride of, uh, Last Ride of the Iron Horse, How Lou Gehrig Fought ALS to Play One Final Championship Season. The interview with Dan Joseph is coming up. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But just, So I, I just wanted them to know what's coming yes. up. Yes. right? Don't fast forward to that, though, because now... I want to talk about a Hall of Famer. Hall of Fame of the day. Oh, I can't wait to... Who is it? Christy Matheson? Uh, no. No. Did he barbecue? Uh, he might have. <laughs> he, he might have. Uh, is it... Uh, I, I, I don't know. It must be your favorite, Mariano Rivera. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, actually, I do like Mariano. But it's... No, it's not Mariano. It's actually uh, a Hall of Famer. A barbecue Hall of Famer. What? That's right. There's a barbecue hall of fame. There's a barbecue hall of fame. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And we are going to talk about a barbecue hall of famer. All right. All 
All right, Len, this is our first Barbecue Hall of Famer. I'm so excited. I'm excited, you know? You're usually excited. I'm excited. So go ahead. This is your thing. You tell us who our Barbecue Hall of Famer of the day is. Hall of Famer of the day introduced with Olympic music because I don't think there is Barbecue Hall of Fame music. Right. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know if there's Baseball Hall of Fame music, but all right. We're going to start with someone that actually, it kind of goes back to, we had David Marks, yes, right, of Operation Barbecue Relief, but he's also of uh, Famous Dave's Barbecue. Yes. Well, there is a Famous Dave's, and in 2017, he was inducted into the Barbecue Hall of Fame. Now, before you guys all start planning your trips and running out to the Barbecue Hall of Fame, I got to stop you. There isn't an actual building like the Baseball Hall of Fame, the Football Hall of Fame, the Basketball Hall of Fame, the Hockey Hall of Fame, right? There's all these Hall of Fames. There isn't an actual building. I'm saving you all a trip because I know everybody, everybody, everybody's like, wow, I know what I'm doing this summer. I'm going to the Barbecue Hall of Fame. <laughs> all right, but there are inductees into the Barbecue Hall of Fame. And the one we're going to concentrate on today is none other than Famous Dave Anderson. So I'm going to read you a little bit about Famous Dave. He's a restaurateur, grill master, and author. Dave Anderson has dedicated his life to making the best barbecue in America. In 1994, he opened the original Famous Dave's located on the shores of Big Round Lake in Hayward, Wisconsin. By the end of that first summer, Dave was serving as many as 6,000 people a week in a town of only 2,000 people. Dave opened his second restaurant in Minneapolis and was quickly recognized as one of the hottest concepts in America Award by the National Restaurant Association in 2002 and most recently, America's Best Love Barbecue Joint. Since then, Famous Dave's has grown to over 180 restaurants nationwide and over $500 million in sales, allowing Dave to share his love for ribs with all of America while creating over 20,000 jobs. Today, Famous Dave's is now an international company with locations in Winnipeg, Canada, I'm sorry, Winnipeg, Canada, Puerto Rico, and most recently the United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi, which we know we actually have listeners there. They have barbecue there. So maybe that's why they're listening to us. Yeah, that'd be great. Because they like barbecue. Dave is one of the most award-winning barbecue grill masters around, selling over 16 million pounds of ribs a year. I, I don't even make that much. I mean, I like to make ribs, but not that many. Right. And has become known as America's Rib King. Dave's Barbecue is highly regarded as the best in America, winning over 780 best-of-class awards, blue ribbons, people's choice, critics' choice, and first-place awards, including... Best Ribs in America, Best Barbecue Sauce in America, Best Barbecue Restaurant in America, Best Cornbread, Best Chicken, etc., etc. No wonder he's famous. Wow. And actually, he, I see a picture of him. You'd think he'd be a lot larger. Right? You would think. <laughs> With all this barbecue. Dave continues to develop new and amazing rib recipes and tasty new barbecue sauces, which are featured in two award-winning cookbooks, Ribolicious and Famous Dave's Barbecue Party Cookbook. Both books won Best Barbecue Grilled Cookbooks in America by the National Barbecue Association. The sale of those books has generated over $1 million in profit, which Dave and his wife Kathy have generously donated to the life skills and career skills work they do with at-risk Native youth, which is incredible. Yeah, what is it? Barbecue people just are very generous with charities, they right? They absolutely are. Yeah. Absolutely are, yes. So that famous Dave Anderson is our Barbecue Hall of Famer of the day. Woo! woo, woo, woo. <laughs> All right. There you go. Famous Dave. All yes. right. And we, yeah, there's actually, we have a famous Dave uh, not far from us, so maybe we'll uh, have that on our barbecue tour. Yes. Right? All right. All right, now. Please tell us what's next. You mentioned our interview with Dan Joseph, and here it is. Dan Joseph is a journalist and author living in Washington, D.C. area. He's a graduate of Indiana University and spent 
and spent nearly 20 years working for The Voice of America, most as the editor of BOA's Central Newsroom. He previously co-authored Inside Al-Shabaab, a study of East African terrorist organization. This is certainly a switch to uh, baseball. <laughs> a member of Saber, he is also a lifelong baseball fan. And he's one of the few people under 50 who attended a Pit Pittsburgh Pirates World Series game. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Dan Joseph. Thank you. Hey, thank you for having me. So, Dan, I guess my first question is, what was the inspiration of this book, The Last Ride of the Iron Horse? How Lou Gehrig fought ALS to play one final championship season. Well, this was kind of a thought I had years ago. You know, Gehrig is mentioned in a lot of Yankee books, of which there must be dozens, if not hundreds. You know, they always talk about his 38th season. It was sort of like the prelude to tragedy. You know, his, you know the ALS was starting to affect him, and this kind of... His downfall was coming. And it occurred to me years ago that how, how did he play the whole season with ALS? How did he hit 29 home runs? And how did he help the Yankees win the World Series? You know, even as this disease began to take its toll. And I had never really seen much written about that. And so I decided, you know, there needs to be a book examining on exactly how did he do that. I, I, I still think it's the most astounding achievement in baseball history. I mean, it's just when you think about what a horrible disease that ALS is, and, you know, he managed to play every game the Yankees played that year, and he drove in 114 runs. I mean, that, that's just incredible. Yeah, but he didn't know he had ALS at this time, did he? No, he didn't. He, he didn't find that out until June of 1939 uh, when he went to the Mayo Clinic. But he knew something was wrong. And that, that's one of the things the Thing that the book that the book discusses as early as spring training, he began to sense something was a little bit off with his this power, and then the, the book is really about how as the season went on, you know, he was he got a, he he started the year in a horrible slump, and he was trying to make adjustments as the year went on, and some points in the season he did better than others. It was it was kind of a year long struggle to find a way around whatever his he didn't know what the problem was. He was trying to find a way around it all year long. He it must I mean it was a very scary thing I'm sure because he all of a sudden wasn't the same player. Had to be very scary. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. He got I don't know if he was from the sources that I read, you know, a lot of newspaper interviews, a lot of oral histories that people gave later on, he didn't seem to be scared during the 38th season. What he was, was confused right, and okay. nervous, and, and, and sometimes he got very depressed, very down, because for years, his body had functioned as this magnificent machine. And all of a sudden, you know, he couldn't run as fast. He couldn't hit the ball as far. And he could not figure out what he was doing wrong. He, he tampered with his batting stance a lot, trying to get back to the old groove. And it was a, it was a season-long search for what the problem was. You know, in the book, I, I talk about mid-season, he was named all-time greatest first baseman in this nationwide poll that was sponsored by Kellogg, I believe. Right. And, and he responded with this note in this that was published in the Sporting News where he was really, really emotional and grateful. And he said this picked him up when he needed it most and he would never forget this honor the fans had bestowed upon him. And I, and I think that's a real indication of, of how he was feeling as, as he tried to regain his usual form. Dan, you start the book with a road trip and an accident. You want to tell us a little bit about how the book begins? Yeah, that was one of the interesting things I found researching this book. He, he was driving to Hollywood. He was about to make his first movie, uh, a western called Rawhide. So he and his wife decided to drive cross-country. And they were driving through this little town in Tennessee called Jefferson city and a woman coming it was a two-lane road 
you know, it was called the Andrew Johnson Highway after the president. So it was really two lane roads. And this woman crashed into his car, and you know, he he went careening off the road and hit and into somebody's front yard. And you know, you can't help but think if the accident had been more serious, we would have never heard. We would have never seen the rest of the Lou Gehrig story. We might have gotten injured, and the streak would have ended. And I, mean, I assume the ice. Assume the ALS would have happened anyway, but wouldn't have been nearly as dramatic as, as what eventually happened. It, but this, this is something that has really never been reported since it first happened. So I dug into that, dug into what happened to him when he went out to California. His agents tried to kind of corral him to help help him in a custody dispute. Right. That was interesting. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was, you know, if you were a Yankee, his a famous Yankee like him, you sometimes found yourself, I think, in situations that you weren't certainly weren't expecting. And then he then he made this movie, and he apparently had a good time doing it. And you know, he drove back home, drove back across the country, and that's kind of where we uh, start getting into training. Before spring training, was he trying to set up his life after baseball by going out to Hollywood, trying to act, be an actor, or was this just like a one-time, you know, one-time shot? No, no, no. I, th- I think, well, yeah, I think he was um, trying to set up his life uh, after baseball. Eleanor, his wife, certainly pushed him to raise his media profile, as we would say today, make more appearances on the radio and movie and personal appearances. She, I mean, at that point, Garrick, I'm sure, thought he could play at least another five years. He, at the end of 1937, he was only 34 years old. He was in perfect shape. He was hitting as well as he ever did. The Yankees were a world championship team. So he, he certainly wasn't getting ready to retire, but he was thinking long-term. And if you've ever seen the movie, Rawhide, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a 1930s Western. It's not much in terms of plot. But as far as baseball stars go, Gehrig is not a bad actor. You know, he, he's a... He, he doesn't really embarrass himself the way you've seen some, some other athletes do when they try to get in the movie. So, yeah, he probably was thinking he could... Actually, there was a producer who said that he could be in, in adventure movies. He, he originally wanted to be Tarzan. Right, he, right, Tarzan. There's a picture in the book. There's a picture in the book of him dressed up like Tarzan. Yeah, yeah. Although it's not so much Tarzan, but it's more Fred Flintstone. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, he, he was positioning himself for, for that sort of thing once his career ended. And he was he was teased when he got back, right? With all the Western jokes being ribbed by his teammates and, and other players. And fans. Uh, yes, yeah, I, I don't know about the teammates so much, but, but the other players really kind of let him have it as the season went on. You know, shouting, Hi-yo, Silver, when he came to bat, and get a horse blue, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Right. And, but I, I'm sure, you know, and opposing fans also had some fun at his expense, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. that that's okay. Now he he also you you know you mentioned Eleanor. She's a very central figure in his life. So they were only married about eight years, and he he had he went from his mother, who was a very strong figure in his life, to Eleanor, another strong figure in his life. So to say that he was uh, quote mama's boy, how accurate would that be? Oh, that would be one hundred percent accurate. In the early part of his career, he, he lived with his mother. His mother came to the games. He, he took his mother to spring training. It, it was They were extremely close because of his upbringing. Because his father, not a, not an absolute father, but his father was more about you know, just going to hang out at the bar or hang out with friends playing cards. And his mother was really the one who brought him the money to the house and, and took care of him and took him everywhere. And I covered a couple interviews where yeah, where the young Garrick said, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to get married as long as my mom's alive. You know, she makes a nice house for me. And so, I mean, I think Eleanor Twitchell, that was her maiden name, she had to really work hard to pry him away from his mother. Although, you know, once he did that, once, once, once he did marry Eleanor, apparently, he really did break away. He really did kind of start a new life with Eleanor and broaden his horizons travel and go to the opera, do, do, you know, kind of lead more of an adult 
more sophisticated type of life. They never had any kids. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, they, they never did. Which made it interesting when I was writing the book because there, there's no Garrick family to, to talk to. There are no descendants. So I had to rely a lot more on oral histories you know, from other players and newspaper and magazine accounts and radio shows and things like that. But, you know, you know these days it's easier, it's much easier to find that stuff than it was 10 or 15 years ago. It's, it's, most of it is online. So. Right. You mentioned in the early part of the book that he wasn't an only child, but, you know, he had siblings who passed away very early. He was, how many siblings did he have and what number was he in there? Like number five, three or four? Yeah, his, uh, his parents had four kids, and he was number two out of four. He had an older sister who died at only three months old, and then a young, younger sister who made it to almost age two, I think, and then she died. And then there was a, a baby who was either stillborn, mm. a, a, a brother who was either stillborn or lived only a few days. He, I mean, in a way, he was lucky. Yeah. He made it. Uh, you know, the family lived in a tenement in New York, and the, the tenements weren't quite as run-down and poverty-stricken as we think of them today, because they were relatively new buildings, I guess, at the time. But still, it was a poor neighborhood, and uh, there was a lot of disease, like scarlet fever and diphtheria. So he, he was kind of lucky to make it. Right, and, and it, it really shows that why his mother was really overprotective. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You've seen her, her treasure. You know, the one, the one who had survived grew up so strong. And there's a story. I, I don't know. I, there's no way to confirm it, but he was supposedly 14 pounds when he was born. And by the time he was a teenager, he was already becoming a legendary athlete. He was playing football and baseball and soccer. And that, that's a little unusual when you think of soccer playing in the U.S. You don't think it goes back to the 1910s and 20s, but it does. He apparently was very good at it, and his team won three straight city championships. Now, Dan, so, I mean, he was a fantastic ball player, but he, of course, has something that only now Cal Ripken Jr. has with him, is the, you know, the continuous game streak of 2,130 games. And, of course, that's part of his whole legacy. Doing some research on... Um, on him, I saw on, uh, well, this is on Wikipedia, so I, I, this is why I want to ask you. I saw something, it said that Ed Barrow, who was the GM of the Yankees, postponed a game as a rainout on a day that Gehrig was actually sick home with the flu. However, it was not raining. Now, they at that time, they didn't have Doppler radar and able to predict the weather. Did you, in your research, did you find out anything about that? Did you see anything on that? I wasn't specifically looking for that kind of thing. I, I was focused very much on the 1938 season. I can tell you this. There were a couple times that year where Garrett was probably saved by rainouts, but re real rainouts. Right. It was, it was a very rainy year, and the doubleheaders piled up as the season went on. It went along because there were so many rainouts. And there were a couple times where Garrick suffered like a back injury or a broken thumb. And a, a mere mortal would probably sit out the next game. Garrick insisted on playing. Fortunately for him, there would be a rain out right around that time. He would have to, a day to rest. So he, he didn't have to suffer quite as much agony. Yeah, I, I've heard stories about that happening earlier in his career where Barrow or... or Jacob Rupert or somebody would have would cancel a game, you know, just to preserve this weekend. Of course, there's the famous story about how he had a horrible, he had horrible back pain, and Joe McCarthy batted him first, and he took one at bat in the first inning, right? Then was removed, you know, to preserve the streak. Right, I, I saw that. So during the 1938 season, he's not having the greatest of starts. He's uh, slumping. Didn't have the great spring training. But he still makes the all-star team. Yeah. And we know that, uh, I know Greenberg had a better statistics. Jimmy Fox was Jimmy having Fox. a better yeah. year. But he still makes the all-star team. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, th that was another, you know, kind of 
interesting story I, I uncovered in this book. You know, he really wasn't having a great year up to that point, the All-Star break. But he, he was picked by the managers to, to go to the game in, in Cincinnati. The other first basemen in the league were kind of furious. And some of the sports writers were furious because for five, the five previous years, Garrick had not only gone to the All-Star game, he had played nine innings at first base every game. And Hank Greenberg, you know, there was one year Greenberg drove in 100 runs before the All-Star break, but he didn't make the All-Star team because that was sort of, it was, you know, they seemed to think it was Garrick's birthright almost to be the starting first baseman. So Jimmy Fox, he would go to the game, but he would just pinch hit. He, he was getting angry. And there was a, a great Cleveland first baseman, Hal Trotsky. One year he drove in 162 runs, but he didn't make the All-Star team. So, you know, Garrick does the game, and finally Jimmy Fox got a chance to start, but Joe McCarthy, the Yankee manager and, and the manager of the Ulster team, he took a, he put Garrett against the game, the fifth inning at first base. It was, you know, to them it just seemed like the most, to him, McCarthy, it seemed like the most natural thing to do. Garrett must be the first baseman. He was so beloved, he was so respected that McCarthy and I guess the other managers in the American League couldn't see it any other way. Sure, and this was a time before the, the the voting by the by the fans. This was you know just straight straight managers. So yeah, I can see how the other players would have been upset. Yeah, there were. So there were eight teams in each league, and they they only picked what what was the number of players? Well, on, at this time it was twenty three on each right. team, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So there there weren't many roster spots. It was a real honor. I mean, the players did not generally did not avoid the game. They really wanted to get in on this. Well, it was very new also, right? It was only about five years old, the All-Star Game. It, I think, it started in 1933. Saw, yeah, so something in your book, you mentioned it was started, the World's Fair was started, right? It was started as a, almost, it was just supposed to bring attention to the World's Fair, and then it caught on, and then, and of course, this was around the fifth year that it was in existence. Yeah, it, it was the sixth game, and, and it was uh, it had become very popular, caught on very quickly, mm-hmm. especially after the uh, famous thing where Carl Hubble, you know, he struck out Dave Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons. You know, he struck out five straight Hall of Fame in the 34 game, and then it, that's when it really caught on. So after the All-Star game comes August, and that's when Lou Gehrig has a... He has a reprieval. He is just starts to hit and starts to find some more power, which he really lost early in the season. Puts the team on his back for three weeks, right? Carries the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was the real reason I wrote the book because because I, I don't. It's it been mentioned in some previous books. But I don't feel like anyone had ever really uncovered what happened and how miraculous that was. Because now you know, now we're five months into the thirty eighth season, and Garrig is. The ALS, you know, is a progressive disease. It, it, it takes away a little more... You, you lose a little more strength and coordination as time goes on. And so Garrett must have lost some power between the start of the season and August. Lost some strength, some energy, coordination. And yet, in mid-August, he begins hitting like his younger self. He... A couple games where he... Four hits, five RBIs. One game he got six RBIs. He's hitting home runs again. Most of the season he's been hitting a lot of singles. And then all of a sudden doubles and triples and home runs were flowing off his bat. And there were theories why this happened. One is that he switched to a lighter bat, you know, so he could swing faster, generate more power. And then he'd been fiddling with his batting stance again and, and one of the sports writers noticed that he basically went back to his traditional stance, and so maybe that helped. And I talked to a neurologist down at Duke University, Richard Edlack, and he, he studies ALS reverse. And his theory is that maybe, period, the body's ability to make new connections you know, through the nerves outraced ALS's ability to destroy those nerves. That ALS is a disease where the nerves connecting your brain and spinal cord and muscles all die off. And that's, that's why you get paralyzed and eventually, you know, you, you can't breathe. And so he thinks Garrett might have had a temporary ALS reversal and this allowed him 
suddenly regain its power. And and when this happened, the Yankees had been fighting the Indians all season long for the pennant, and they went from two games in front to about ten, in just the span of a couple weeks. Because uh, suddenly the engine in their batting order was uh, running at full speed again. And uh, what's, what's uh, also remarkable is that during there was one week, because of all the rainouts, the Yankees had to play six doubleheaders in one week. Oh, wow. That never happened today. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the players' union wouldn't allow it. Okay, right. But uh, Garrett not only played in all 12 games that week, he played nine innings in all 12 games, and he still hit a couple home runs. I mean, and, and this was in the middle of August, all daytime games, all probably 85, 90-degree heat. And uh, he, he stuck it out. And I, I just think that's just... Dan, this in the book you mentioned, of course, it's Last Ride of the Iron Horse, how Lou Gehrig fought ALS to play one final championship season. Comes with Jeff and my official uh, recommendation. <laughs> so we we are the Oprah Winfrey's of baseball books. So you can expect once this podcast comes out, you are going to go, Straight to number one on that Times bestseller list. All right. I, 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 uh, I, I like your... What I wanted to add, so in the book you talk about Gehrig, how he, you know, was wanting more money, and DiMaggio was going to be, was hoping to get 40000 and then Gehrig wanted to be, you know, the highest paid player on the Yankees. But you also talk about how these players were basically captives of the team. What I find interesting is that the only way that the player could fight back was to sit out. And and it's just amazing to me how these players earned any money because the owner could have just said, "Okay, sit out. You're not going to make anything." So it's just amazing to me how he they even negotiated this. They were they were at such they were at the whim of the owners. Pretty much. I mean, Eric himself had power because he was so outstanding, and, and so did Joe DiMaggio, but most players had to pretty much take whatever the team took them, because the, you know, the contract structure, the reserve clause was in place, and they, they weren't allowed to be free agents or offer their services to another team. It was, it was either take the offer or sit out until the club gave, you know, raised the offer. Eric, for years, get any raise. He had a big raise early in his career after winning the MVP in 1927. But then, you know, he got no raise for the next seven years. Yep. And finally, he, uh, he persuaded Jacob Group or the owner to give him more than, to give him a raise to $31,000, which sounds like nothing now. Although, it, in the, in the mid-1930s, in the Great Depression, that was a pretty hefty salary. And this kind of turned into an annual game of chicken. You know, he, had, he held out until mid-March, both 37 and 38, trying to get more out of the Yankees. And Joe DiMaggio, as you mentioned, joined him, joined him in 1938. Uh, there, there was just nothing else that they could do. That, that's one reason I'm sure he went to Hollywood to try to make some money on the side. And uh, and that's, he, that's why he was... Barnstorming with Babe Ruth? Make endorsements. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry? He was barnstorming during the offseason with Babe Ruth, make some extra money... Yeah. Yeah. Getting back to on the field, on the, so after August, he, he puts the team on his back, and they make it to the World Series. So he's in the World Series for the uh, third year in a row against the Chicago Cubs in 1938. He didn't have the best World Series of his career, but he still got a hit in every game, and he, he even though he didn't hit any home runs, didn't have any RBIs, he still contributed. Isn't that true? Yeah, that is true. I, if I could just back up for a second. Sure. Now, in the, in the week before the World Series, now, he had kind of a, an unusual transformation as the season wound down. I think he was getting tired. And actually, the other players noticed that he being tired in the field. And he kind of adapted a new approach. The 
game where he really wasn't swinging for the fences anymore. He was just trying to get on base. And if you look at his stats over the last two weeks of the season, you know, he suddenly, he, he's not Albert Pujols anymore. He's Ichiro Suzuki. Lots of walks, lots of singles. And he's contributing to the team that way. The World Series comes, basically did the same thing during the World Series. If, if you read a lot of baseball histories, they say he contributed four empty singles to the Yankee attack. But really, they weren't empty singles. They were all singles that led to runs. You know, they were all in rallies. And he scored several times. And he played, made some nice plays in the field. So he was still helping the Yankees win. But there there was a moment in I think the first game where he lined a single to first to right field, and he tried to stretch it into a double, and he got thrown out by several steps. And that was uh, kind of a signal that you know he was slowing down. He, he uh, the ALS was taking an effect, uh, it, it, but the Yankees, you know, were so strong at that point, it, it didn't matter. They they won all four games rather easily, and, you know, Garrett acquitted himself, I, I guess I'm saying is Garrett acquitted himself better than maybe that, maybe baseball historians have given, have given him credit for. Right, he right. did, but he, but of course, he wasn't being paid to hit singles. He was, he was a middle-of-the-lineup guy. He wasn't a table setter, so... Yeah. And and at one point he he kind of gave in right he said something like you know well I'll I'll hit for average right he 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 wanted to hit three hundred or whatever and he kind of gave in to the fact that he wasn't hitting for power. Yeah, Joe McCarthy after Garrett died, Joe McCarthy told a reporter that he had had that conversation with Garrett where he said I noticed you're not you know taking a big cut at the ball anymore and Garrett said. Well, yeah. If I hit a lot of singles, I'll help. I'll help the team and lead the league in hitting. And McCarthy said he knew something was wrong then, because up until that point, Garrett was a guy. He was a home run guy, you know. And he thought that that, that can't be my real first baseman talking. Yeah, I, that that was the approach that Garrett had to take in order to just find a way to stay on the field and, and help the team win. So, 1938 might not have been statistically his best year, but from what he's going through, that, that year really showed him that had he had a lot, a lot of guts to play through that and lead his team to the World Series. Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned the stats. When the year was over, for a guy who was who had the early stages of a deadly disease, you know, he was in the top ten of everything. He's, he was still in the top ten of home runs, RBI, Runs scored, walks, extra base hits. Again, this is just amazing. Yeah, and, and he, uh, I, I, it, it, it's tremendous guts. It was more. It was actually it's more than guts and courage. It was smarts because he found a way around his ailment, at least for for much of the season. It shows you know, great ingenuity and and great physical stamina. I've always felt that. One of the reasons he was able to cope so well is because he was starting from such a high level of strength and durability and coordination, you know, much higher than even other athletes who have come down with it. You know, uh, there are there are a handful of other professional athletes who who have been hit by this in mid career, and usually they're done pretty quickly once the ailment really begins to set in. And Garrick persevered. You know, throughout all of 1938 and, in, and into 1939, even, it's, it's just remarkable that he was able to do that. Now, Dan, you go into this, uh, even picking up the book, I mean, there were things that I was expecting, because, uh, you know, everybody knows something about Lou Gehrig, uh, baseball fans. When you, what was the most unexpected thing you learned while you were researching? Probably... Two, two or three things. I don't, I don't know if there's one thing, but two or three things. Um, after the 38th season, he became unusually political. He gave a speech to this forum on the nation's issues sponsored by uh, the New York Herald Tribune, which was like the, the main rival of the New York Times. 
And he was, you know, on the same podium as Eleanor Roosevelt and Fiorello LaGuardia. And that, that just shows how much respect people had for him. And then a month later, he appeared at a rally at Madison Square Garden to raise money for Jewish refugees in Germany. This was, of course, when you know, Jews were fleeing Germany any, any way they could to get away from Hitler and the Nazis. You don't associate Gehrig with, frankly, you know, that kind of activity. He was German through a German American through and through. His, his parents came from Germany. He spoke German. Uh, he very much identified with German culture. But he was up there trying to raise money for these uh, refugees, and he did it in both thirty-eight and thirty-nine. So you know, one time could maybe be a written off as like a, a favor to a friend or something. But he did it two years in a row. So I think he really, really meant it. And then another thing that was surprising was in the winter of 39, he got involved in a public campaign in a, another fundraising drive against polio for the March of Dimes. I found this commercial uh, or a public service announcement that he gave on a radio show where he's talking about how this horrible disease, you know, polio, paralyzes children and, and destroys their lives, and I, I can't help but think, deep down, he, he had a premonition that this was coming for him. Maybe not polio itself, but he knew that his body was weakening, and maybe this was the way he dealt with it. Right. So the 1938 season comes to a conclusion, 1939, he starts the year as the Yankees' first baseman. We know he, he takes himself out of the game, ironically, to a player named Babe. In this case, yeah. Babe Herman. And, uh. Dahlgren. Babe Dahlgren. I'm sorry, right. Babe Dahlgren. Thank you very much. Thanks for the correction. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there's the, the 4th of July speech. Uh, his, I'm the luckiest the, man. The, yeah, the, 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 Gettysburg, the Gettysburg Address of Baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's all these dignitaries there, and, and Babe Ruth is there, and uh, it was really a, a day where he did not, did not write down the speech. He actually said that off the cuff. Yes, uh, I think Eleanor later said he did kind of plan it out in advance somewhat, but didn't, he, he may have written it down or she wrote it down, but yeah, he was mainly speaking off the uh, top of his head. He gave that, you know, the memorable line today, I'm the luckiest man on yep. the face of the earth. One of the, one of the things I, I in the book, and I, I knew this you know, prior to reading the book, but he became, uh, he retired from baseball and became the New York City parole commissioner. Uh, what, what, what was upsetting, to, I guess, to me and, and baseball fans is that the Yankees just said, okay, thank you very much and see ya. Didn't offer him a job or anything like that. They said, we don't need your service anymore. And, and that was it. That, that, I thought that was such tremendously sad. Yeah, I mean, they, they did pay his whole salary for the 39th season and gave him a full World Series share. So, they, I mean, it's not like they gave him nothing, but after the season was over, they chose to move on, and he he moved on and got this uh, parole commissioner job, which apparently he enjoyed very much. You know, though, they had done the same thing to Babe Ruth a few years earlier. Yeah, yeah. That was just, uh, I guess that was just the attitude. Mm. We're done with you. We got a ball club to run, so move along. But but Garrett, he adapted pretty well to retirement. Given that he was sick, he had this job. He continued to make appearances at like the World's Fair and on the radio. It wasn't he, he wasn't going home and crying in his crying fear. He, right. he kept living. So Dan, uh, one of the uh, I guess urban legends. While well, everybody, you know. Th- goes by the Gary Cooper version of the speech and it where he says it I think at the end of the speech that he's the luckiest man or whatever but he actually says it in the beginning of the speech urban legend about Lou Gehrig is there anything that when you were doing your research you kind of dispelled like any urban legends about Lou Gehrig that we would think are true and aren't or vice versa <laughs> Yeah, there are um, there are several. Like, like you said, the, the famous line of the speech was at the beginning, not at the end. Oh, well, there's there's one. One of the urban myths is that there was 
there was a sports writer named James Kahn who said during the 38th season, uh, wrote during the 38th season, I think there is something wrong with him, physically wrong, I mean. And this turns up in various biographies and, and books. But I did look for that quote. It was in various New York newspapers from 1938 and 39, and I can't find it. I don't think James Kahn ever wrote anything like that. I think it was maybe he, he or someone else gave him credit afterwards, after Eric died. There's, uh, there's another one where Eric, the Columbia University was, you know, Eric went to Columbia University, and you right. can find there and various websites that he's credited for saying black players belong in the game, and there's, you know, there's no, it's, baseball is the American game, there's no room for discrimination. And I do think Garrick felt that way. But this quote, which has made the rounds over the years, again, I can't find any record of him actually saying that, you know, at any point during his lifetime. I think it might have been something that was attached to his name after his death. You just, you know, you just can't believe everything that is written instead about right. old baseball players. Memories have a way of changing and shading as, as the decades go on. And, and that, I, that's what, I like doing that in general in my work. I like trying to mm. shoot down the tall tails or right. confirm them whenever they're possible. Yeah, it's like the fish that keeps getting bigger <laughs> every time the story's told. Yeah. So, so, Eric was a fisherman. Yes, that's right. He was he was a fisherman. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and he was uh, also doing a lot of radio spots as well. There was a p- couple of pretty good quips he had in, in your book. I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to give it away because I want people to read it. I mean, yeah. there was some pretty good things in there. Yeah, that's one of the things that we that Jeff and I were talking that we really enjoy about the book is you never know, there's like little tidbits things that pop up that you just you didn't know like the. Uh, well, again, not going to ruin it. The radio but they're, spots, yeah, yeah, radio spots. They're that are just you might you, you're not going to find if you're just looking online for Lou Gehrig, uh, you know, information. Mm-hmm. So that that that's just a great thing when you, when you're reading and then to have something like that. You're like, and you remember those things too. Yeah. You know, now I found it after the book came out. I found. A Garrick radio spot from 1932. That's obviously before the scope of the book, but th- and this is a Garrick talking about Babe Ruth and the 1932 World Series. You know, the one where Ruth supposedly called his shot. And obviously, this isn't mentioned in the book itself, but I, I have this this audio of Garrick talking about this, and I've never been sure exactly what to do with it. But at some point, I'm going to find a way to to get that out there too maybe uh, an updated edition or, or some other way well Dan we want to thank you for taking the time with us the, the book is called Last Ride of the Iron Horse How Lou Gehrig fought ALS to play one final championship season and it could be found on Amazon all the major bookstores anything else uh, you want to say well I want to say something oh, else okay say something See, else I'm not Dan Jeff just bowed out he tapped out, so it's just you and me now. <laughs> All right, you're, you're a Pittsburgh Pirate fan, so um, what? I, I so you write this book about uh, you write this book about Garrick, but you could write about a Pittsburgh Pirate. What do you think you will write about any uh, Pittsburgh Pirates? No. Um, and who would it be if you did? Who would it be if I did? Clemente is obviously the most famous pirate of all, but there have been a couple books about him, and there have been a couple books about Willie Stargell. Ah, maybe Honus Wagner. I don't. I don't know if there's ever been a real Ooh. good biography about him. Yeah. So the Wainer brothers, maybe, or. Uh, well, my favorite Pittsburgh pirate is Kent Tacova. You just love the way he pitched. Oh. I love oh. the way he pitched. Uh, the, yeah, the submarine, right? Yeah. He threw the he threw yeah. the submarine pitch, right? Right. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I, although I, 
I am actually working on another book right now. I'm starting to write one about Pete Reeser, who, you know, he was the great Brooklyn Dodger outfielder in the 1940s, mm-hmm. uh, who some people compared him to, like, Willie Mays, although I think a better comparison is Pete Rose. He's just a sensational player, but he ruined his career running into outfield walls mm-hmm. after five balls. And uh, there's a lot of exodus. There's guys, there's a lot of tall tales about him that you will find in many a baseball book about the Dodgers. And I'm, I'm kind of digging into that and seeing what's true, what isn't. And uh, I, I think I'm uncovering a, a lot of good stories that will make for a good book. All right, well, that now I will tap out as well. <laughs> Dan, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we highly recommend the book. Once again, it is... Last Ride of the Iron Horse, how Lou Gehrig fought ALS to play one final championship season. I recommend everybody pick it up. Yeah. Great, great book. Yeah. And, and Dan, you're, you're great, so thank you very much. We want to thank Dan Joseph for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. That was a really good interview. Very interesting. Yeah, I agree. And what I like a lot about it, and I think I may have said this to Dan, is that, again... There's so many things out there about Lou Gehrig, but I feel like he brought some things out in his book and in the interview that maybe you you don't know. Absolutely. There was right. a thing definitely in there that, that you didn't know, which yeah. uh, I appreciated in the book. Right. Being a big Lou Gehrig fan, even though I obviously never saw him play, and growing up, I actually did book reports on Lou Gehrig in elementary school. So he was really, I really, really like Lou Gehrig. And this book really brought out a lot of of stuff I did not know. Right, because you always want to learn more. And it, it seems like some of these guys, like Babe Ruth is a perfect example, right? You always think, what else can I know about Babe Ruth right. that hasn't come out? And I, I, I used to think the same about Lou Gehrig, but obviously that's not the case. So highly recommend Highly recommended, yes. Yeah. Len, do you have any good barbecue advice? Oh, I've got some really good barbecue advice uh-huh. that's going to help you in life. Okay, great. By the way, I gave my boss as a holiday gift a, bar- a barbecue sauce. Well, you gave it to your boss? Yes. Hopefully your boss doesn't go on Twitter and complain about it. I'm oh. going to tell you why. Really? Oh, yeah. This is some good... Yeah, you ready for this? Yes. All right. Guys, do not do what this guy did, okay? This employee said he was fired after anger over a $6 barbecue sauce gift. So apparently a Toronto man got fired from his job over the holidays. When he got, And I'm reading this from the New York Daily News. Okay, i got to give them credit. New York Daily News says, When he got a little too saucy on Twitter over a lackluster present from his company, a $6 bottle of barbecue sauce. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I love barbecue sauce, but... Yes. Hussein Mahaldi... I'm say, I, I know I'm butchering his name, who worked as a general manager for construction material wholesaler called Fastenal, told CTV News in Canada he lost his job after anonymously complaining about the gift. Apparently not anonymously enough. This year, Fastenal gave its Canadian employees a bottle of barbecue sauce that retails for $5.99, which replaced a box of goodies that they usually receive for the holidays and that United States employees received this year. So here's what he says. You'd get cookies, M&Ms, beef jerky, a box filled with junk food. We always really appreciated that. It must have been more than six bucks. Yeah, right. So, so he liked getting the food. He didn't like getting this barbecue sauce. So it says, besides December being a weird time to give barbecue sauce. Wait a minute. No, it's not. I, like I just said, I gave my boss barbecue sauce. My but, boss barbecue sauce. But not only that. Now, December it, it, is not a weird time. Barbecue season is all year. In my defense, it was a gift set with some utensils, a couple bottles. So it wasn't a one bottle of barbecue. It was a It's all about set. you. Yeah. It's all about uh, you. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. But, and that was a nice gift. It, he should appreciate it, right. I hope. All right. Yep. He says, okay, what else he says? He says, I work really hard. We get pushed really hard to reach our sales goals, he said. I felt I gave this company so much, and I felt really disrespected when I was given barbecue sauce as a holiday gift. Listen, that's fine, and I understand. I mean, 
Absolutely. But here's where he went wrong. And here's the advice. This is the advice for everyone out there. My barbecue advice. To vent his frustration, Mahadley went on his anonymous Twitter account to call out the company. No, 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 no. No. What kind of multi-billion dollar company gifts its Canadian employees barbecue sauce as a holiday gift? Yet the USA employees stuffed their face with an actual holiday gift box, his tweet said, with a photo of the sauce attached. Okay. Big mistake. Unfortunately for Mahadley, he also tagged Fastenal, the company that he works for. Bigger mistake. In the tweet, which led to a phone call from his manager the next day. He called me by my Twitter name, Mahadley said. Thanks to another photo on the account, which showed his computer and his workplace in the background, the company had identified the disgruntled barbecue sauce recipient. Third mistake. Despite deleting the tweet. No, no, once, no. It's, once it's out there, it's never right. going away. Yes. Mahadley was called into a meeting with his manager on December 30th and fired, which his manager said was based on the wishes of corporate in the U.S. The official reason for his firing... According to an exit interview letter, says he was terminated for a violation of standards of conduct policy. Now, CTV, who did the story, spoke with a lawyer, Richard Johnson, who said that issues like Mahadley's, where employees are disciplined for complaining publicly on social media, are becoming more and more common. That's, that's probably true. We're running into this issue really frequently. People are taken to social media, talking about having a bad day. Something their managers are doing, internal politics at work. And I have a, okay. And one of the big issues, if the employer is named in the post, and whether it embarrasses them and whether it diminishes them in the public eye. So employees need to be very careful about this. Mahadley said the timing of the fire made it particularly tough. Well, you know what? The le- lesson learned there is just, you know, if you want to write something, you don't, don't send it. You know, right. just, it, don't tweet it out. It, that big mistake. I hope that it was... Uh, you know what? If it was Ray Sheehan's barbecue Buddha sauce, oh, it'd be rave reviews. Exactly. He would not have complained. <laughs> I know that, right, Ray? <laughs> we got to send that to Ray. All right. I think it's time to wrap this and up. And it's that time to say goodbye. So, till next time, this is Jeff and Len. See you next time. And we are going to end on a new song called "Baseball Always Brings You Home," written by Dave Dresser and Shell. Krakowski, and I hope I am pronouncing that right. Enjoy. <laughs>